Well, that is one way to wake up. Mm. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. Today, I'm joined by co-founder of Second Home, Rohan Silva, who in his previous life has also been described as one of Downing Street's brightest and wildest thinkers. I think that's probably an understatement. Um, Rohan first worked as a civil servant before becoming senior policy advisor to the British Prime Minister. As government's rogue thinker trying to drag the UK into the 21st century, Rohan was responsible for the prominence of the digital economy, including the rise of Tech City, a project which firmly put London on the world's technology map. After a seven-year stint at number 10, Rohan quit, and within a year, he and his business partner had opened Second Home, a London-based workspace and cultural venue designed to support creativity and entrepreneurship, also dubbed the anti-WeWork, with a big focus on diversity and businesses at all stages of growth. Second Home has since expanded to Lisbon and LA, opening, what, in a few weeks? Yeah, in a matter of matter of days Jesus Um, so what I find fascinating about Rohan and perhaps why we click is that he both embraces technology but also creates and celebrates anti-tech experiences Rohan it's so wonderful to have you it's such a pleasure to be here thank you for playing Bjork at the beginning as well why do you think I chose it (laughs) That's a good question. Um, Well, uh, it it made me smile because I literally was singing that song to my baby son this morning because I'm trying to teach him. (laughs) No way. I do. Every day, every day right now we're doing It's So So Quiet. Um, Maybe I got in your mind. Maybe you did. Um, And my normal Bjork morning song is um, Birthday by the Sugar Cubes, which I I listen to most mornings. Why did you play it? Well, I think um, I definitely... um, quest after and yearn for quiet but i'm not very good at finding it i think i constantly kind of fidget and need noise in my life maybe like mrs dalloway to kind of cover up the emptiness inside i don't know (laughs) but um i for a really long time in my life i think i always needed to kind of be around people and music actually and for lots of good reasons but also maybe for bad ones too and so i definitely i definitely yearn for quiet I guess I hit on something deeper than I realized. Yeah. I'm going to start crying. No. Because um, I was actually thinking about it in, a, in very simplistic terms. Because uh, the first time I heard about you, um, it was connected to Libraria. And I'd read an article, I think it was Guardian. Uh, and I thought, like, what a fascinating person. Principally because you shared a lot of the things that I loved, which mm. is that focus on curation, on ceremony, on experience. Um, and Libraria was sort of part of the first second home. That's right. I mean, for uh, for listeners, Libraria is a, a bookshop that we opened in London. And um, and inside this, this bookshop, which is uh, a very strange place, um, you're not allowed to get a mobile phone out, otherwise someone, usually me, will give you a clip around the head. And, um, and the idea of the, of the bookshop, and indeed of everything we do at Second Home, is about this question of where do new ideas come from? Where, how does creativity happen? Is it just manna from heaven? Does it just fall from the sky? Or can you create environments and communities and cultures that maybe make those 
collisions, creative collisions and sparks a bit more likely. And I think one of the things that's really important in this digital age is finding places, this is especially for me, where you're kind of forced to be free, where you kind of uh, can escape from all that distraction, which I think can be so bad for creativity. Um, as, as, as necessary as the digital age is, you know, paradoxically, I think we need to kind of escape it to to move forward at times. And I think more so, I think actually as we go forward, it may even be that we become much more selective about those experiences that we choose to have in our lives, you know, and I think we'll be probably switching off a lot more and having that real deep focused time because ultimately I think that's when things connect, imprint, move us, remind us of why we're here and of how we're all connected. Ironically, a lot of the stuff that we think connects us doesn't always. Yeah, it's, it separates us. The, um, there's lots of evidence that, that suggests that if you read a physical book, you retain more of that information, gets sort of st- lodged in your noggin um, much more readily than if you read off a screen. Why is that? Well, it seems to be because, you know, reading a book is a much more kind of multi-sensory experience. You've got the weight and the smell and, and you know, sort of partly remember where you've, you know, something you've read because of how far through the book it was and so on. So there's just many more, um, yeah, the, the, that multi-sensory experience means it's much more likely to lodge um, and so, yeah, for a whole host of reasons, I think, you know, if you, if you care about creativity, you end up doing stupid things like opening bookshops. And we're opening one in L.A. as well, which is, which is really exciting. As part of this as second home? As part of second, second home, yeah. When will that be coming? Well, so, so second home is opening at the beginning of September, just after Labor Day. We're counting the, the, min- <laughs> the minutes down now. And, um, and, and what, we're, what we're creating in, in L.A. Uh, is a two-acre campus. We're planting 6,500 trees and plants, um, 112 different native species, and, and, and creating this incredibly kind of green campus. Why? Because, um, you know, again, you look at the, the empirical evidence, it, it suggests that um, being around environments closer to the ones that we sort of evolved in, you know, i.e. Um, colour and plants and curves and natural light and so on. Again, it's really good for our well-being and good for creativity. Bjork herself um, created a beautiful album called Biophilia. And that word biophilia describes this innate connection we have with the natural world. And um, yeah, the, the, those kind of environments are nothing like our kind of grey, monotonous cities. And that's why Second Home looks um, the way it does. Interestingly, Bjork also talks about music as medicine, Mm. which is something I entirely believe. And that's really the subject of this show in some respects. Um, The title, Orange Juice for the Years, is taken from a quote of Oliver Sacks about the power of music, how it goes way beyond doing simply the things we think that it does. Um, So I ask every guest this quote Music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the year. What does that mean to Rohan? Mm. Well, I mean, for starters, what a great man Oliver Sacks was. But the, um, I started learning the piano for the first time a few years ago. And um, when, I was, when I was a kid, I really wanted to play the piano, but my mum couldn't afford a piano and she definitely couldn't afford lessons. And so I'd... Um, sort of embarrassing to admit, but I had long thought I might be some kind of piano genius thwarted <laughs> by 
by like fate and 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 just and denied and access socioeconomics yeah <laughs> and um and so a few years ago i started playing the piano and with it sort of came as this kind of very sudden and like crushing realization that i was totally mediocre at the piano and um but i absolutely love it and what that quote makes me think of is how relaxing you know i, I do find it quite difficult to switch off and i think when you run a, a little business you sort of wind up kidding yourself that if you just work a bit harder and then everything will be okay and that's definitely not the right answer and um and starting to play the piano a few years ago it was just incredible because i find it really hard because i'm not very good at it and um um and it's so absorbing and and really um you know there's nothing else um apart from my baby that you know i find just completely relaxing and and so as as on all things, I think Oliver was Oliver Sacks was bang on. Did you take up the piano when you experienced burnout? It was um, well, I was experiencing burnout, but I um, I didn't. It's not actually why, at least consciously, why I started playing the piano. I read a book by Alan Rushbridger, who used to edit the Guardian newspaper, and it's a it's a lovely book which I totally recommend to people. Go play it again, and it's about um, Alan Rushbridger, who while editing the Guardian. Um, full-on job and WikiLeaks was breaking and all this kind of stuff, decided as a pretty bog-standard pianist to try and learn how to play Chopin's Ballad Number no. 1. I'm no great, um, you know, uh, aficionado of classical music, but by all accounts, it's an incredibly hard piece to play on the piano. And it's a story of him struggling to learn this piece of music. And But the book's also about... Um, how much more we can achieve in a day than we sort of think if we sort of fight to make time. Um, and it's also about the kind of role of the amateur in music and journalism and things. It's a beautiful book. And that's what got me um, wanting to play. And it's, as I say, it's what brought me face to face with my complete lack of talent. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, this, this idea of the Oliver Sexes of kind of music philia, this sort of idea that, you know, people are just attracted to music I really, well, we're a musical species this is mm. the thing that i think a lot of us don't realize is we attribute being musical to being talented or being able to play an instrument we're all musical music mm. is really for everyone um it imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience but i think often with lessons and with theory you know there are all these barriers to entry and i think actually it's just as simple as what it does to you, what it feels like to you. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be in any way like more complex than that. My, yeah, it's, it's really yeah, beautifully put. You know, my parents um, were from Sri Lanka. Um, and uh, they, they separated when I was really young. And my mum, for a whole host of reasons, just wanted to kind of have a total clean break from her past. And I think also wanted, you know, I was born in the north of England, and I think she wanted me and my brother to be sort of fully British and think of ourselves as British or whatever. Anyway, so a whole bunch of reasons. She played no music in the house when we were young because her music would have been Sri Lankan music and Bollywood music and stuff. She didn't, for you know, as I say, for lots of reasons, didn't want to listen to that or have her listen to that. So in a, in a very pure way, I'm a, you know, I think we're sort of a bit of an experiment because we weren't exposed to music. And yet I just remember as a kid kind of clamoring to have the radio on and have Radio One, which is a kind of British pop station, BBC station, um, constantly recording stuff off the radio. And, you know, that that thing you're describing, the, the fact that music, we're drawn to music. It's just this natural thing you can't. It's, I, I really, I, I think that's so, so true. 
Okay, and with that in mind, I have to ask, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Mm. Well, as you know, BT, I've, I've been sort of really struggling this week. <laughs> I'm bombarding you with emails. Kind of, actually, no, wait, this. I mean, the first song that I, I remember really getting fixated on was Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. And at the age of, I don't know, six four? or five? four or five, okay. yeah, um, taping it on the radio and playing it. And, but the, the song that I think um, really stuck in my head, properly stuck in my head, was um, Tomorrow Never Knows off Revolver by the Beatles. And I, I was about sort of 14, 15, and at a mate's house, and he had some decks, and um, he left the room, and I was sort of having a play around. I'd never used decks before, and um, didn't know what the hell I was doing. And he had a Beatles record and something else, and I put them both on and put the headphones on, and this sound came out, and I thought I'd mix these this, this <laughs> stuff together. I thought a bit like me and the piano. I thought, wow, am I am I really good at this? And um, and when he came back to the room, he pointed out all I was doing was listening to <laughs> one of the one of the records, which was Tomorrow Never Knows, and it blew me away because because you know, as I say, my mum never exposed me to music or whatever. The Beatles for me, age fourteen, fifteen, were Yellow Submarine. When I'm sixty four, I thought they were kind of a kid's. I thought it was it was children's music. So to hear this properly blew my mind. Not only that the beat that music could sound like this, but also there was this group called the Beat that I just clearly knew nothing about. And anyway, I it, it stuck in my head kind of forever. And um, I played this everyone after that. And um, uh, and it also sent me down this kind of wormhole because you listen to it and you think, where the hell did this come from? And then you discover that Paul McCartney was playing around with tape loops because he was influenced by William Burroughs. So age 15, you start reading Naked Lunch and then you read Kerouac. <laughs> and you know, you know what I mean? That the way music can just open so many doors. Um, yeah, it, it properly imprinted. Well, let's take a listen to Tomorrow Never Knows by The Beatles. Hey, this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dublab. We are here with Rohan Silva, co-founder of Second Home. Um, and has, he's also had a whole other life before that. And that was the track that really imprinted on you as a 14-year-old living in Wakefield. That's right. Um, and you said that when you listened to it, you actually thought you were mixing between that and... No, I think it was like a techno... Sort of, it was like it's definitely like a dance um, record, yeah. And uh, yeah, because you know, I thought the Beatles were Yellow Submarine, and so I must, have <laughs> this, I must have made this happen. It's incredible listening to it now, just how futuristic it still sounds. If someone on Dub Lab was saying, "Here's this brand new record," oh, it by could a be French a sound of now, yeah. Right. I mean, you'd think well, that sounds futuristic now. It's, it's just staggering, really. And that, I think, was inspired by Lurie's adaptation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, psychedelic experience. So there was definitely when they were in that kind of time. I think they were even living at 34 Montague Square, which was this place I did that musical jacket, which was actually when, wow. we, met when we met in the, in the beginning. And Because I, I know also um, Paul McCartney was recording, you know, William Burroughs and all these other beat poets in 34 Montague Square as mm -hmm. well. So um, anyway, I want to know more about growing up um, because you said, you know, you were, so you were born in Wakefield, 
West Yorkshire, Sri Lankan parents. Uh, your father was a lecturer, your mother was a teacher, and then an, an accountant. And you were raised by your mother and stepfather. So your p- parents divorced. How old were you when they divorced? They separated when I was about five. Yeah. And then my mum uh, sort of met a, uh, a lovely Yorkshireman um, shortly afterwards. And he sort of sort of raised us, really. And he, he died when I was um, 18 of a kind of brain tumour. Um, and Wakefield, you know, was a place that I felt very at home in it's kind of it's a little bit like LA although nothing like LA in that you can get out into nature really quickly and so I just spent all my time kind of on mountain bikes and kind of playing out and playing football and stuff I mean sort of depressing I play football I think every day of my life between the age of kind of six and 14 and I'm still rubbish at football (laughs) which is really sad you know the the kind of there's that sort of idea that if you put in 10,000 hours into something you'll yeah sadly not always sadly not always (laughs) and were you creative you know as a kid growing up were you someone that was having ideas and making up things and Uh, yeah I mean I don't know I think I think I was probably quite annoying in that I would I think get bored quite quickly and always want to be doing stuff um I think I was always kind of out and about and um, me and my little brother used to go and knock on everyone's doors to get them out to play football and climb trees and stuff and I'd always be kind of getting into trouble for kind of exploring and going kind of way further than I was allowed to go. There were like strict rules about, we're quite lucky you got to kind of go around but you know we weren't allowed past our estate and stuff and I would always kind of head off for miles beyond and things which looking back on it was probably a bit dangerous. I can see why my mum was freaking out but yeah I think I was always quite um restless I think and um I always kind of loved cities I was I was I used to kind of cry to be when I was little to kind of be taken down to London and go to the natural history museum and the science museum and stuff there was just something about the metropolis I think that I wanted to kind of get to you also talk about how you really loved learning and when you loved learning but you just couldn't sort of stand the structure of school yeah I I, I think I would have been such a, a horrible annoying obnoxious kind of kid to teach and um so I'm sorry to you know everyone who um had to be in the same room as me but um yeah I did I, I love learning I just couldn't ever really understand you know I just kind of wanted to kind of do my own thing and if you read something that was interesting you just want to read more by that person or you know you'd listen to Tomorrow Never Knows and then you want to read Burroughs and you know I just couldn't understand why that wasn't encouraged a bit more and then really obnoxiously I could never quite understand why having kind of got something you had to kind of prove it to a teacher you know, I never I never could sort of take seriously kind of you know writing essays or doing homework and stuff which is terrible. Looking back on it, it was so no, bad. But I, you but. know, I, I had exactly the same experience, and I don't. I kind of don't think it's obnoxious. I think it's actually that oftentimes there is something kind of fundamentally wrong with a lot of education, and you know that whole idea of divergent thinking, which I don't know if you have come across Sir Ken Robinson, but he talks a lot about it and how kids come in and they're experts at divergent thinking like thinking of all these different ways of solving something and by the time they're 15 they suck at it you Mm. know because that ultimately a lot of the time gets ironed out you know um yeah it is it's really sad and i think you know the the idea behind second home really and this emphasis on creativity we have how can we support creativity you know comes from this view about 
where the jobs of the future are going to come from because we're living in a scary moment for lots of reasons. But one scary thing is that as technology becomes more advanced, it's replacing huge numbers of jobs. I mean, some estimates are, uh, you know, 30% of all jobs in America being automated over the next few decades. And so where are the new jobs going to come from? Well, jobs that involve creativity are much more resilient to automation because luckily for us, the machines and the algorithms and robots kind of suck at creativity for now anyway. And so, you know, this, this, you know, I think we really do as a society have to think about how our education system, how the workplace, um, you know, how, how our kind of wider institutions support creativity. It's not just this fuzzy, nice to have thing anymore. I think it's of kind of real macroeconomic, you know, significance. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's that whole thing of a lot of the things that make something move us or unique are actually the imperfections and yeah. you'd never program the imperfections. No, it's true. And, and you know, I remember when I was working in Downing Street going to China and, and, and uh, going and visiting a bunch of schools because British schools were expanding to China and all this. And it's really interesting seeing how they're, they're, they're trying to think about how to introduce creative thinking into the curriculum because they get how important it is for their economy. And I do, I do feel in Britain in particular, we've really lost that, you know. And, um, yeah, I just, I just found school so kind of pain, painfully kind of boring um, the whole time. And, you know, it didn't have to be like that. So going back to your Orange Juice for the Years, we've mm. heard the first track that imprinted. Um, there was also Ghostbusters, which was when you were a kid. Yeah. But... You know the Beatles can replace Ghostbusters. That's fine. I think they. I think they deserve that place in musical history. Mm. Um, looking at the first album that really had an impact, uh, what would you say that was? Yeah. Well, again, I sort of chopped and changed this a bit this week, which I'm sorry, but because um, I, I was thinking a lot about the Bends by Radiohead, which I was really obsessed with, and you know, there's that quote in High Fidelity where he says, "Did listening to sad music make me?" unhappy or was I unhappy and then listened to uh, sad music and you know the Benz for me was this album that kind of did make me sad but maybe I was going through that teenage angsty period anyway who knows but what I ended up choosing was um, Dummy by Portishead and maybe not for the best reason but it just for years as a teenager it's what I used to listen to kind of on loop while reading and so I really think about it whenever I kind of read the stuff I was uh, uh, reading back then you know, as like Rushdie and and Steinbeck and you know Ken Casey and people like that. Um, I think of Portishead, and when I hear Portishead, I think of those authors. It's kind of it's sort of imprinted, properly imprinted. And <laughs> yep. It's really kind of intertwined, and you know, um, my favorite word. Yeah, and I don't think it was entirely. You know, I now listen to. And I'll read without having to have music on in the background. But um, yeah, for those for those years in my bedroom as a teenager, it was all Portishead um, on loop. Well, let's take a listen to Wandering Star from Portishead's Dummy and go back to your teenage bedroom. <laughs> That was Wandering Star from Portishead's Dummy. And you are with BT Wolf and Rohan Silver. 
um, Dub Lab Studio, and we're chatting about Rohan's Orange Juice for the Years, the music that over the years has stayed with him and reminds him of books and certain times in his life um, and makes up some of his musical DNA. And we were chatting about that record as something that you discovered when you were sort of 14. Um, and it was a record you would read to, which I think is awesome because, you know, I, I do go on a lot about imprinting, but that whole idea of, you know, having something physical, having a story, having a ceremony, um, and obviously then the imagination, I think those ingredients are what allow something to go deep and stay with us and, you know, and change us in some ways. So that's why I like my parents' record collection for me was that, and that imprinted. Um, but, you know, the other record you also talked about was The Bends, because you were very social, like, as a kid. You're someone that wanted to be out a lot and, like, was hanging out with people. And then that was a record that kind of made you turn inward more. Mm. Um, so sort of both those albums, but particularly Porter Said. Um, and did you always love books? Yeah, I did. I really... Um... Yeah, I, I remember sort of screaming to get taken to the library the whole time. And my mum no, was great, and so she would want to take me to the library, and she couldn't <laughs> afford to buy books. So the library was such an asset. And, you know, I definitely am sort of obsessed with kind of trying to ram books down people's throats, which is why we open bookshops with every second home. And um, I'm actually just building a, uh, a library for a school in Sri Lanka as well. So, yeah, always trying to kind of... Um, Voiced books on people, and I just think that just the most magical escape. No matter who you are and where you're, none of us chooses where we're born or who we're born to. Um, books can sort of take you anywhere, and in in so many senses, and 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 really open your kind of eyes and and ears. I think something that I particularly love about your library curation is that you don't go with standard ways of categorizing these books. So you have like. Um, Madonna and Whore. Yeah, so, we, yeah, so the, the idea of, of our bookshop, Liberia uh, in London and soon to be in, in LA, is that, um, you know, clearly Amazon exists, right? And so you can't compete with Amazon in terms of scale. But what you can, I think, beat Amazon is um, serendipity. Because Amazon's great. If you click on, I've got a, you've, you've kindly have put a copy of um, Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis in front of me. <laughs> you know, if you click on that on Amazon, it will say people who, uh, bought this, also bought, you know, other examples of, you know, 20th century fiction, um, maybe John Updike and Philip Roth or whatever. But it's very hard to to go from there to quantum physics. People who bought this also bought quantum physics or Oliver Sacks. Or, and actually that is where I think so many new ideas come from and creativity. I think we're very good as humans at joining the dots between unexpected things, that kind of non-linear thinking. And so the way we organise the bookshop, these kind of themes like wanderlust and terror and power and so on, is to maximise the chances you'll come across something you weren't looking for. And those themes all run sort of horizontally. So if you're in our bookshop, wherever you're standing, you're looking at like 10 different themes. And so your eye really can jump from uh, evolutionary biology to, you know, Renaissance poetry to, you know, a graphic novel. And, um, and that's really fun. And I think that's kind of what makes life worth living. Um, life's more interesting when things are a bit more mixed up, I think, fewer walls and silos. Um, but as I say, very deeply it is, uh, you know, I think one of the ways in which new ideas happen and creativity happens, that kind of cross-pollination. And so we're kind of obsessed at second only thinking about how we can 
um, make that happen through everything. Our cultural program, the community at Second Home being as diverse as possible. Everything is about this idea of creative collisions and, and new ideas. And I think it's worth saying you are very much in a unique position. I think you always have been in this way of sort of bridging divides between Downing Street and Shoreditch, big businesses and startups, highbrow, pop culture, middle age, young. Um, what made you feel like that was something you wanted to really focus on? That's really kind of you to say. I, um, I think that, uh, I think it's probably a good thing and a bad thing. I think the, the bad side is a kind of um, restlessness, which is not always good. So, you know, if I'm supposed to be looking at one thing, I will generally go off and look at something else. And that's not, I, I know that's not always a good thing. Um, but I think it's also about genuinely thinking about when new ideas come from. I think they've, you know, specialization is a great thing. Um, I'm just not particularly wired that way. I really like ranging across things and trying to introduce something to something else. You know, when I worked in uh, Westminster in, in, in policy. Um, there's a funny system in the UK where you have a kind of a government in opposition, sort of in the shadows. Is, uh, it's called a shadow government, a uh, shadow party. And um, I find it a really fun time because you're kind of hoping to get into government one day and you get a chance to think. And I was able to kind of bring in behavioral economics and lots of stuff to do with technology, really because I sort of thought, you know, um, the only way you can make government better is by bringing genuinely new ideas in, potentially from academia or the world of technology and so on, these kind of big structural changes that are happening in the wider world. You've got to bring them in. And that's, I think, a bit different from how people generally think if they're hoping to get into government. Normally, you sort of think, if we get into government, we'll be better than them because we're smarter than them, which I think is a really dumb way of sort of thinking. And, um, you know, maybe a better approach is, is to say, yeah, there's actually, look over here in this branch of economics there's these new insights why don't we apply those and you know um i think barack obama president obama's team were amazing like that and they were a big inspiration for trying to approach policy that way but yeah i think i think everything's just more interesting richer yeah. richer thinking yeah no, I mean, I... you're so great at this and um i think artists in particular which I'm definitely not, but I think, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal, right? And then, you know, they're stealing often from other fields, other disciplines, other um, periods of time. Um, I think it's a, it's a lovely way of looking at the world. It's just, it's not easy. And I remember with bringing behavioral economics into our policymaking um, when I was uh, working in government, a colleague of mine said very kind of cruelly to me, um, you're only doing this because you don't understand real economics. And so you always, I think, are open to that, vulnerable to that kind of criticism of either being, you know, a dilettante or because you're trying to challenge the way things are done, um, the, the people that are uh, sort of standing for that way of looking at the world often fight back. And, yeah, that's hard. But that's often fear and there's no progression in that. So I think you played a absolutely vital role. Um, and I think, you know, London wouldn't have had the boom that it had at the time, you know, with just everything in that sort of tech space really being celebrated and kind of erupting. Um, so just moving on, before we look at the music that you want to send into space, um, I have to ask a very quick question for your US audience. How close is Monty Python to working in Whitehall? <laughs> um, my experience of it was definitely closest to 
the West Wing. Okay. Uh, genuinely. <laughs> and in the, um, I think I was a bit too kind of wide-eyed and naive maybe, but the people I worked with just spent their whole time genuinely trying to like do the right thing in a admittedly slightly often, you know, madcap comedy way and things would go wrong and whatever. But, you know, I, I actually just think at least British politics is however much you disagree with different people for the people who genuinely want to do the right thing. Money doesn't really play a part in British politics because you can't buy TV advertising. So it kind of basically kind of limits how much money anyone ever needs or manages to raise. And so it's, it's a relatively, like, of course there are total douchebags. And of course there are people in it for themselves. And of course there are egomaniacs, like everywhere. But... Yeah, I actually, I actually thought much more like the West Wing than the thick of it, which is a very kind of, as I say, wide-eyed answer. I was just thinking about the silly walks. The but, silly walks. <laughs> but we can move yeah. on from yeah. that. Um, so, Rohan, what music would you send into space? Um, so I, I, I went with um, Loaded by Primal Scream, which is a track off Screamadelica. And it's the song that I used to listen to before going out and getting getting pissed um, as a 16, 17-year-old, 18-year-old in Wakefield. And um, uh, and the reason I wanted to send it into space is, you know, if there is life out there, um, chances are it may well be way more advanced than we are. And you don't want them to kind of come here waging war because we'd be finished. Um, you want them coming here thinking, let's let's have a party and let's have a good time because... You know, otherwise we're we're really in trouble. And um, this song, whenever I hear this song, which is not very often these days, all I want to do is spray on some cheap sixteen, you know, the kind of cheap aftershave I used to spray on when I was sixteen. Links. Yeah, drink <laughs> drink a three bit of bottle of cider and kind of get get out on the get out on the town. Okay, and, well I've got the cider next door, so um, let's have a listen to "Loaded" by Primal Scream. Just what is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Well, wait, baby, let's go. We're going to have a good time. Hey, you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears. And this is BT Wolf. I have Rohan Silva joining me today, sharing the music that uh, most gets him going. And that was Loaded by Primal Scream. That was a track you'd send into space um, because it reminds you of letting letting go. I feel like also it just has a big thing about freedom. Mm. Like whenever I hear that song, obviously also the voiceover at the beginning, you're just like, yeah. And is freedom a big part of your makeup, do you think? I think so. I really hate, um, I guess like anyone, right, really chafe against people telling me what to do. And um, Well, we've got to get off in 12 minutes. So. Really? Yeah, <laughs> well, hang on a minute. <laughs> um, and, um, and I think the other thing that's sort of great about that song is how daring it was in a way, because, you know, that's that album Screamadelica that song comes off you know was this bridge this really daring bridge between like acid house and dance music in Manchester in the you know late 80s early 90s um bridging across into kind of the guitar music of Oasis and the Charlatans and etc 
And that was a really ballsy thing. I mean, it's always hard to, you know, if everyone's doing one thing, it's always hard to kind of push in a new direction. You risk people laughing at you and uh, and, and taking the piss and everything. And, and it's such a cool record and, it's, and it is really freeing, but it, I think it's also really daring in that in that leap to a new sound which then ended up shaping manchester for the next you know 10 years and i think actually looking at your music choices so far they're all pretty daring um you know like that beatles track is definitely you know it's definitely one of the more out there sort of experiments they did and so i was worried coming on dub lab which is you know you guys played amazing music i was thinking everyone's gonna be playing you know warp record stuff and you know stuff by you know stereo lab or um yeah aphex twin and i'd be stuck here playing the beatles and you kind of everyone's played the beatles rohan (laughs) i mean the beatles have a hundred percent orange juice for the year's success rate um because i think it's that honesty it's like Mm. you can't fake that stuff you know if you go off and like lose your mind and need the, need music to restore you if that is like the extreme scenario mm. you're not going to put on something that doesn't absolutely make you feel great and so i think that's that has to be what the show is about also because it's the most interesting to actually learn about the people right. and and why those songs or those records really resonated with them because it kind of tells that it tells their story in a different way yeah um so i'm really curious what what was the original spark for the idea of Second Home? So I started Second Home with a, with a friend of mine called Sam. And I spent many years working in government uh, for the Prime Minister and in Downing Street and at the Treasury. Sam ran a charity uh, for the first chunk of his career, which helped young people start businesses. And so we both come from that kind of public um, sort of service background. And the idea really uh, for Second Home came from, you know, um, me saying... Uh, hang on, there's all these big changes happening in the economy and society, mainly driven by technology. How come our um, buildings and cities aren't keeping pace with that? And and Sam, on the other hand, came from, you know, actually having, you know, so I came from this kind of Ponzi policy kind of perspective. Sam, on the other hand, you know, had had been opening workspaces and music venues and stuff under this charity to try and support creative people. And so we both came together, you know, me, as I say, from a very abstract, um, pretentious place and Sam from a very practical place and, and got together around this idea. And, you know, government is great and I'm really ambitious for what government can do, but there's lots of things government doesn't think about and government doesn't really think much about place. What are the kind of places and environments where entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity actually happen. And we know there are, you know, throughout history, there have been neighborhoods and buildings and clusters who have been disproportionately productive in terms of creativity and entrepreneurship. So Second M is really about trying to bring those kind of insights from urbanism and biophilia and behavioral economics and a whole bunch of other fields and just do something really practical, which is create a place to work and be and learn and um, get pissed um, that hopefully in lots of ways, big and small, helps you be a little bit more entrepreneurially successful and a bit more creative. And those things matter more and more in this new age as machines take our jobs. The new jobs increasingly involve creativity and they definitely uh, more and more involve people in creating that job for themselves Mm. because the big companies are shrinking their workforces due to technology. So, yeah, Second Home really... Um, you know, it's an attempt to try and, you know, help lots of people in this new economic age. And I think 
that whole idea and, and it runs through everything that you talk about and everything you do of just having you know really a positive ecosystem and having startups next to big companies and across all different fields and having flexible leases and making it a super creative environment and ultimately also a sort of cultural think tank and hub um, which also has a big focus on diversity and biodiversity and even the green aspect it must be a harder road than doing it the we work way yeah it is really i mean you life is definitely easier if you just want to do the same thing every time and you know second we really do kind of sweat the details like our cultural program is we really you know which is open to everyone it's open to the public um anyone can come to any of our talks we just did our first ever event in la with the filmmaker david lynch um talking about uh, transcendental meditation um of she was course. amazing i was there that's yeah, why there. i bought the kafka yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah lynch talking about how much kafka shaped his life and um and um uh, and the, the next talk we have is with thomas heatherwick the designer we have oriel estevan coming up the great um mexican-american photographer he's also going to be bringing a bunch of hip-hop artists that he he loves and and so yeah the idea of the cultural program is as, as with everything else is um exposing people we think to different influences and perspectives you know you might be a fashion designer or a musician or um an accountant and hearing from you know a theoretical physicist you know it might be completely irrelevant to you but then again that might just prompt a spark a new idea that leads you somewhere interesting or because our talks are all open to everyone you might be sat next to someone that you end up striking up a conversation with and doing things with so we really believe in that you know diversity but we also think it's something you've got to really fight for you know this you know our, our kind of mantra is diversity makes creativity stronger um and yet you know london la our cities are just much more segregated than they should be um you know industries are really segregated you know tech people hang out with tech and government with government and charity people with charity people and so on um and also, obviously, lots of segregation on the basis of, you know, race and and money and so on. And, and we, I'm not saying we can fix that secondhand, but we are trying to show in a small way how things could be a bit different and, you know, how positive that can that can be. Moving on to a slightly less positive moment in mm. this show, um, we're going to imagine that you're no longer with us. Well, it might be positive for some no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine who, maybe for um, my teachers, maybe for Breitbart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, what song would you like to have at your memorial? I, I've thought a lot about this. I, um, I, I would love to play. And sorry for playing another Beatles tune, but um, "Come Together" by the by the Beatles off Abbey Road, because I would really like uh, on the day of my funeral there to be a lot of. Uh, rumors about whether i was really dead or not and um just to keep get a bit of intrigue going <laughs> and this this song is loaded with you know what later been seen as references to this like hoax about paul mccartney maybe having died and having been replaced which obviously never happened i'm not a, a total sucker i don't think but um rohan believes all these rohan believes all the conspiracy theories. but um but there's lots in there like um you know one and one and one is three come together over me well three is the number of beetles left after paul 
dies. Um, he's got hair down below his knees. Your hair keeps growing after you die. He's got monkey fingers. Your rigor mortis means your fingers curl up. After. Anyway, um, there's loads <laughs> of stuff in there about, about, about death. So you want to pose the question, are you still alive? Very much so. Okay. I mean, I've kind of blown my cover now, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've told you this. There's, um, I mean, there's loads of, I think, quite fun things you could do when you die. I remember hearing this comedian, Chris Addison, who is in the thick of it doing a stand-up show. And he was saying he really wants to get buried uh, in a way that messes with future archaeologists. He said he wants to get buried um, hugging a, uh, a toaster so that they might think that's, that was like the culture at the time. And um, he also wants to be spring-loaded, his skeleton to be spring-loaded. So if an archaeologist ever prized open the coffin, his skeleton would like fly out at them. Um, so I definitely also want to... It's going okay. to take on all those. Do those, do those okay, well. lots to think about with your death. <laughs> yes. um, let's have a listen to "Come Together." Come together right now, over me. Oh, so impossible to uh, fade out that but we have to for the sake of getting in the rest of your orange juice for the years that was come together the beatles kind of needs no um introduction and uh, that was the song you'd have at your memorial rohan yes <laughs> so to, you know partly because it's just such a great tune but um they had such they they really were so willing to you know not only innovate and try new things but also kind of mess with you as an audience they were so playful with their words the Beatles um and you know yeah there's so many messages in there that they deliberately placed I think um to say is this guy really dead what's well, going just on just to like have a bit of fun with the storytelling yeah, right. and I think that that clearly you know you're a lover of uh stories and you know, keeping things open and not ever having something be definitive and it's mm. neither one thing nor the other. It's sort of both. Um, so just because I'm conscious of time um, and I could talk to you forever, um, we're now going to talk about the record that you would pass on to your kids. Mm. Well, Joseph, for sure. Um, but also kind of symbolically, like the record you'd leave for the next generation. And you met your wife, Kate, in 2008, um, you create a sort of Wi-Fi free zone on the weekends. Um, you had your first child a year ago um, and you actually talked about the struggle with that and broke some of the stigma around that, which I think is amazing. Um, what, you know, what is the record that you'd want to pass on? And does that also connect to sort of what you think the world will be like that he's growing up in? Yeah, it's something I think about a lot because, you know, growing up, as I say, it's not like I grew up in a Romanian orphanage but there was no I was never given music to listen to there was no record collection to discover it's kind of the opposite of of you and yet um you know so for me all music was kind of a discovery and and so it's a really hard one with your kid do you push things on them or do you let them discover it for themselves anyway I think one of the things I'm definitely gonna um bore him with is the story of how me and my wife met uh, which I won't drone on about now but um just shortly after we met, she was on a kind of tour, architecture tour of Europe. She's an architect and disappeared off to Europe. And I very uh, cheesily sent her various kind of 
terrible poems and stuff and a link to you're going to make me lonesome when you go by bob dylan and she came back to london and she does say that if i that song made a big you know difference in that decision and she may not have come had it not been for that song and um and then at our wedding we had someone read a bit from shelter from the storm so this uh, that album um blood on the tracks is is kind of our album and so our beautiful son joseph is just a year old kind of wouldn't be around i think in a very real way if it wasn't for that record so i'm afraid he's gonna have to endure it kind of every car journey every 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 few days uh for the next few years when before we close on that um and actually wasn't it tangled up in blue that was the one you yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. off blood on the tracks okay yeah. yeah so i sent her you're gonna make listen when you go um we had Shelter von Storm at our wedding, but yeah. I'm going for the opening track. Lovely. Okay, because I was like, oh, shit, I've, no. I've messed up hey, the, look, the one song that is the reason you have a son. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. No. Um, so I'd just like to ask before we end today and we listen to Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan from actually More Blood, More Tracks, mm. um, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? I don't know. I think... Um, I definitely love music, you know, you know, what you do, BT, is amazing. I think I love music and musicians that are um, trying to break out of whatever box the world is trying to put them into. And the Beatles did that constantly. And, you know, Bob Dylan said, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. And, you know, that is just really true. And the, the specific version of Tangled Up in Blue that, I, that you're kindly playing is, is one of the you know, many takes of this song. And when you hear it, um, it sounds perfect. And yet Dylan, the Beatles were the same, just kept plugging away, kept revising things and working at things and seeing, um, you know, when anyone else would have said, right, that's, that's done, they kept going. And I find that really inspiring. And I think if I was trying to pass on something to my son, I think it would be that, um, you know, keep, keep working, keep trying. Okay, and, and in just a few words, what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you're doing? Uh, <laughs> look, I, um, I'd love to leave behind, you know, a, um, a way of kind of looking at things, at least for the small group of people that know me, um, where, you know, we look at the world in a more optimistic way that things can be better than they happened in the past and more creative and more entrepreneurial i think that'd be a, a really nice thing thank you so much rohan silva thank you for having me early one morning the sun was shining he was lying in bed wondering if she changed it all if her hair was still red her folks there said their lives together 